So, are they okay just like this, or do you need the carton? Whatever you want. How did you get in here? Down there. I mean, down by the water. But you're not wet. There's a hole in the fence. By the water, not in the water. Fred should... I mean, Mr. Thompson knows about it. He showed it to me. Oh, I see. So, you're sure they're okay like this? Yeah, yeah, it's okay, no problem. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Oh, please say hello to Reeve. Tell her we're looking forward to the game tomorrow. I'll tell her. Thanks again. And, and thanks to Fred and your friends for helping us. What happened? Hey guys, welcome back to the Blood of Black Rob podcast. I'm Ryan from Coltsploitation.com, and I'm joined with my co-host, Martin. How's it going? Ah, we're doing well. We're doing things difficultly. You're doing proper English there. You didn't say doing <laughs> difficultly. good. Difficultly. Well, I know I was saying I was more because you said well instead of good. It's true. It's well. true. I, I try to do that. I Sometimes I say people, you know, right away, people say quickly, like, how's it, how are you doing? I say good, but a lot of times I try to say well. Try to work it into my vernacular. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're uh, we're picking up. We uh, are doing the second episode in our difficult film series. I know you didn't really like that that moniker for the. No, it's the shit one. I, I like it it's... though because I think it like I think it 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 it, it is a, a good def- definition of like what we're covering because sometimes you know what we're, we're talking about. Some, sometimes the film you can interpret it in different ways. What does it mean to be difficult? And I think the film that we have today kind of hits the difficult definition in two different ways. Like you can really define it uh, differently depending on how you feel about the movie. And we'll talk about that as we get into, you know, the the proper uh, theme for this mo- for this uh, episode. But I think the the difficult the idea of difficult. Um, hits differently than if you just say something like um like uh, disturbing films or something like that uh diffi- well, I, I i meant more like have like a nice you know nice mo- actual moniker like disturbing's not wouldn't be that good either mm-hmm. we've have anthalloween we've done remake ween we've done <laughs> uh di- so what do you want like difficult to <laughs> difficult to ween difficult may <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, Death Wish series. Uh, difficult. Uh, we're doing the difficult defecation month. So creepy, it's Carpenter. You know, that's you know, that's up there. I think this year, with all the talk about just, and this is a kind of a off the subject sort of thing, but with all the talk about David Cronenberg coming back for a new uh, directorial film, what I is think he, it's 94? time for. Huh? 
What is he, 94? Yeah. He's like George, Mil- uh, George Miller, like rolling him out to, like, come on. Yeah, I know. Get, get done before you die, bud. I, I think uh, I think it's time for So Creepy It's Cronenberg this year for Halloween. I would appreciate that because... I think um, that would be... You know, and that kind of it kind of goes along with Difficult Films. We didn't do any Cronenberg for Difficult Films Month, but uh, I would not... I think that I think we should slot that in. Halloween this year is going to be so creepy. It's Cronenberg, and that actually works even better than Carpenter, to be honest with you, because you get like double alliteration there. <laughs> I don't know what that's called. That's not work. It's not just alliteration, but when the first two letters match, we're going up north for, for it's for our this version of Carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I would, I would be down for that because I mean I haven't seen a I haven't seen a lot of Cronenberg, but I've seen enough. Obviously, like, we already did the fly, yeah. so we wouldn't do that one. But we would probably do um, Videodrome. I mean, that, if you, you know, if you're talking Cronenberg, that's one of the big ones. Um, and then a few Scan- others that I think would be cool. Scanners. Uh, yeah, obviously. Yep, scanners would be another big one. Um, I think we we would probably do something like uh, Shivers and uh, Rabid would be two other ones that I think we would really want to cover. Um, you wouldn't want to do The Dead Zone with Christopher Walken? The Dead Zone, recently watched that, holds up very well. It's a very good movie. And a great USA Network show. I never watched the show. Martin Sheen is in um, The Dead Zone, if you Ooh. don't recall. Plays the, I have I have not seen. I've seen. He clips. plays the uh, presidential candidate. It's a good movie. We, should, we might do that one too. We'll have to do the naked lunch. Yeah, and that Your ties favorite. in really well to our our episode today. Naked lunch. Because oh, what we're, do, we're doing a burrow book? Yeah. <laughs> no, we're not doing a burrow book. We're doing oh. we're doing a uh, an Austrian film, and I don't think oh. we've ever had an Austrian movie on the show. Never. Well, we've had we've had uh, we've done films with Arnold in them. We've had an Austrian on the show, <laughs> but we've never done an Austrian film. Uh, but this one that we're doing for difficult films, the second in uh, in the series, is an Austrian film, and then it was also an American remake film, um, basically a shot for shot remake as well. Um, Michael Haneke, Haneke, Hanek. Hanukkah. I always I say it incorrectly. I always want to say Haneke, and that's probably the American in me, the uh, you know, northeastern American in me that wants to say it like that. But Hanukkah. You might as well just say it like that. Like I know. Saying, like you're... <laughs> just like from from here on out, I'm gonna say it incorrectly. Sorry in advance. Uh, but but Michael Hanukkah, um, he's pretty well known for his uh uncompromising films um he is in in some sense cronenberg-esque as well although maybe a little bit more of an auteur than than cronenberg um and are you are you saying you wouldn't call cronenberg an auteur he is but i would say that hanukkah is even more um he he has not really been accepting of the the like you know the genre of horror he doesn't he doesn't really consider himself a horror director or an, any any one genre director i i think he kind of transcends genres and some things just kind of fit in in nice places but he doesn't really 
um, fit into one nice niche. And Cronenberg kind of does. He kind of, you know, he doesn't really venture too far outside of the horror sphere. Hanukkah, he, he kind of does a lot of things. But the main idea of his movies is generally to be affecting to the viewer, to be somewhat traumatizing and disturbing. And um, that's why I kind of I kind of put him in the same similar class as Cronenberg, but maybe a little bit outside of it as well. Just because, you know, not all of his movies are horror movies, um, and it, he certainly wouldn't define them as being horror movies, or even probably... Um, except the fact that they're horror movies, as we'll talk about a little bit in this show. But um, he, in 1997, he uh, brought the film Funny Games to Austrian theaters. And then um, not too, about a decade later, I think uh, 2008, uh, he brought Funny Games to American audiences who, you know, if they were cult film fans, they probably already knew. His uh, funny games from 1997. It, it sort of made the rounds, especially later uh, in the in the late 2000s, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, early 2000s. Um, they it kind of uh, crossed the border, and um, cult film fans and you know the ones that were really rooted in in um, international films probably knew of Funny Games, but the 2008 remake was pretty much a shot for shot remake of. Um, Hanukkah's 1997 version and he actually directed the remake too it was just simply to put American actors into the mix because it is kind of affecting to see people that you know in the movie um, and I think that that was one of the main reasons why he wanted to remake it for American audiences to make it so affecting because see, sometimes seeing like people that are you know, well-known in Austrian cinema, but not well-known in American cinema isn't as effective or realistic as seeing somebody that you know and you've seen in multiple American movies. So that was, I think, really the intention uh, is just to make it a little bit more personable um, for American audiences. But ultimately, they are really almost the same movie. Um, I had seen Funny Games, the 2008 remake uh, prior to seeing this one, the 1997 version. Um, and it really is ultimately the same. I don't really remember any significant differences from it, from the soundtrack to the events. Um, there, it's, it's all pretty much the same. So for this show, I picked the, the 1997 original um, because I thought that it would be the most, um, I don't know, authentic to Hanukkah's vision and his Austrian roots. And you'd never seen Funny Games, right? No. I haven't seen the... Uh, excuse me. I haven't seen the original, nor uh, the remake. Um, when I was watching this, I did remember that, you know, um, when we were talking about films to do, this is probably the one I was least familiar with. Uh, but when as I was watching it, I kind of had like a flashback from like a decade ago when I saw a random review. I think it had to have been something on Channel Awesome back at the time from that guy with the glasses. Um, either Cinema Snob, Renegade Cut, or that uh, Browse Held High did a review on it, and I remember kind of like vaguely the premise and idea of it. Mm -hmm. But other than that, uh, no, I you know haven't 
had any experience with it. And to be honest with you, I don't even remember the remake being coming out. You know, yeah, it wasn't um, really, or ever really being promoted as anything. To... It wasn't huge, and actually, for regular critics, it didn't really do that well either. Um, which is kind of kind of interesting because um, Hanukkah's films tend to be fairly critically acclaimed. Um, Funny Games just was not. And even in the, even the Austrian 1997 film, a lot of critics kind of found it to be, and you see this a lot too with with these types of movies. They kind of found it to be vile, <laughs> um, demented, or depraved things like that. Like the adjectives that get thrown around like that a lot, um, where you almost feel like it's kind of ridiculous for a critic to come out with such a strong view of the film like that, where they've obviously missed a lot of the point of the movie. <laughs> um, be- because you kind of expect to hold critics at a, like a higher level than, you know, you're a casual viewer. Um, for a casual viewer who's just going in and watching this movie for entertainment purposes, I can kind of, I can kind of see that. Um, but for a critic who just watched it and came away with one particular um feeling about it that it was vile uh it just seems ultimately ridiculous to me that you know you can't really trust that that viewer because if it's not like a period piece or (laughs) you know like a colin firth um british (laughs) film wow well you're going straight for the king's speech again that's right that's right (laughs) yeah you know if it's not one of those then of, of course it's not going to uh, be, you know, something that we're going to recommend. I think that's just ridiculous. And that's a lot of the reason why I don't really take much stock in the Oscars at this point either, because you can tell when something's Oscar bait and it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be the best film, the best picture of the year by any stretch. And just, just thinking back to Hereditary when we did that movie, Tony Collette puts in a, a great performance. Did she win an Oscar for it? No. Did she even get nominated? No, because it was a genre movie. And you're not getting nominated for something such as that. I mean, all you really have to do is go down the incredibly long list of like Oscar films and mm-hmm. you know what they've given awards to. You know, Dances with Wolves won Best Picture over Goodfellas. It's all you need. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't always translate to, you know, casual, regular viewer experience. It's Oscar bait. Well, it's not even that. Like, so, like you know, again, like, like, it's not like it has to be, like, you know, artsy-fartsy. But, again, at the end of the day, like, there's... <clears throat> Like, some of these films are great films, and then they just, you know, kind of go with, like, no, this one's, you know, mm-hmm. this one's special. Yep. All right, so before we get into the the sum total of funny games, let's, let's take a break for a second. Talk about the beer that we have on the show today. I'll let you take it away, because this is kind of <sighs> your thing, so. What do you mean it's my thing? This is y- your thing, because... You're you're the the ultimate purveyor of the Jenny beers. Oh, okay. think of you um, as the local expert. Oh, okay. Um, 
So, we have been waited with bated breath and anticipation uh, for this new Genesee release. Uh, one of our favorite breweries, and also one of our favorite beers. Well, one of our favorite breweries is the Genesee Brewing Company, based in Rochester, New York. And also, one of our favorite beers is out at this time, the Ruby Red Kolsch, which we've done before on this podcast. It's been out for about six years now, when they first started really expanding their seasonals outside of the Jetty Bach, <clears throat> excuse me, which they've done since like the 50s, maybe early 60s. But this year, they're adding something new, um, just like they added something new last winter when they did the Crayon Orange Keller beer, which was amazing. Uh, this year, they're doing a new Kolsch they, to pair with the Ruby Red Kolsch, which is still out at the same time. They're adding another beer to the lineup, and it's their Tropical Pineapple Kolsch. Captain Kolsch is going on vacation to Hawaii, <laughs> and he's having himself a good time, as you can tell, with his nice Hawaiian shirt and him holding a pineapple. I like that there's uh, like a little backstory to each of the, the new releases and cans for this for this man. He's He's really enjoying life. I know. I love the, like the little the Jenny guy that they put on like most of the cans now, like you know, and the little ads they do on Facebook. He's, get, and stuff. he's getting around Oktoberfest. He's fucking going to Hawaii. It's 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 amazing, really. What skiing what skiing as a sh- skiing for the Schwartz beer, and now you know the flannel for the cranberry orange Keller beer. But yeah, so they're adding another Kolsch to their lineup, which um, I love because out of all the seasonals, the Ruby Red Kolsch is my favorite. It's one of my favorite beers that's out there. And I was excited for the pineapple because I love pineapple. I love it more than I like grapefruit. Grapefruit, I don't really care for that much because uh, it can be a kind of cumbersome thing to drink. Like sometimes it's like too bitter. Sometimes it's, you know, it doesn't have the right sweetness, the right tartness. That beer, that beer nails it. Uh, the pineapple, so I was expecting great things with this pineapple. And I will say, this is a, and it has, it, this is a very good beer. It's grown on me more as I've drank drank it. Um, I don't think I like it as much as the Ruby Red Kolsch, but it does have like an incredibly forward pronounced pineapple taste. It definitely tastes like you're drinking like a can, like straight from a Dole can of like pineapple juice. Nice little pina colada taste. Um, it's not really beery. There's no real like colchiness to it. There's like you don't get like any like the barley or malts and hops. It's all buried under the pineapple. So your mileage is gonna vary on how much you like pineapple. Especially more of like an artificial pineapple taste. If you like like that pina colada taste, then these are gonna go down smooth and you're gonna enjoy them. Uh, if you don't, then it's gonna be really sweet. Really, you know, just probably too cloying, cloying for you. Um, but I like it a lot. It's a great companion to add to their colches that they do. Um, as Ryan and I were talking about, I would love to see him like do like a mango one now or like a passion fruit. It'd be delightful to you know just keep adding new fruit flavors to the colch because it's a great, excuse me, great <laughs> style of beer. That adds like lends itself to like different likes of fruits like this. So, um, if you are able to get it, try it because it's only available until July, maybe early August. So, get it while you can. This is delightful. 
it's I enjoy it greatly. Yeah, I really like this one too. Um, I I I really like the ruby red Kolsch. Um, I think that's a really strong uh, beer in general, and I think that's probably be because the grapefruit flavor is so pronounced. Um, but I do think that the tropical pineapple is really good as well. Um, it may not match. Uh, the the strongest suits of the Ruby Red Kolsch, but I think that it's a really good beer too. It goes down really, really fast um, to the point where you're almost like surprised at how fast you've just pounded that beer. So it's very crushable. It is a perfect beer for a hot summer day um, because it is light too. It's light, has a fairly low alcohol percentage um, at 4.5%. So it is one that you can kind of session. And the pineapple flavor is um, certainly on the sweeter side. It does have, uh, you know, the tendency to, to taste like um, pineapple juice in some capacity. Um, but it doesn't have an extremely artificial flavor to it. Um, you do get a little bit of the, uh, the, the yeastiness towards the end of the, uh, the you know, the taste. But other than that, I think this is a really solid beer from them. It definitely is not a misstep in any direction for Jenny. Um, they've been they've been really killing it with all of their specialty craft beers that they've been releasing um, throughout the seasonal um, sessions. Um, and I really like too that they are routinely changing up what they're releasing for their seasonals too. Um, it's good too because. Um... When you posted, and you know, the, when the guy was like out on Facebook that was saying, like, in the 518 craft beer, like, I didn't know Jenny made such things. And it's like, yeah, they've been doing it for a long time. Try the brew house. Mm-hmm. They really haven't done anything, like, wide release brew house, which is sad that they haven't really done a wide release brew house, you know, beers. So it's nice to see that, you know, that they're kind of changing up their seasonal lineup outside of, like, you know, the Oktoberfest the Kolsch and the Bach. So like, you know, they're kind of like adding new things to it to make, you know, you know, give you something, you know, a bone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that I like the fact that they're, they're really changing up their seasonals a bit. Um, I think that's a really cool element to what they've been doing and I hope they continue. Like I hope next year we get a different, you know, specialty type of Kolsch. Um, really fun to anticipate what they're going to release. Um, and I look forward to what they do because I, I really don't think that they've had a misstep yet. You know, I've enjoyed pretty much every single specialty beer that they've released so far. Gotta get ourselves some tie dye Kolsch uh, shirts. Yeah. Cause they have, they have pineapple, they have pineapple tie dyes now too. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! Yeah, you that Kolsch is going right to you. You've got I know got some nice gas there. Well, you know, usually you got you going the, <laughs> you know, so got to add yeah. to it. But <clears throat> as as we like to say on the podcast all the time, we're not sponsored by them. We're just fans of the product. That's right. That's right. So Genesee, um, call us uh, or send us like a keg. That'd be great. Yep. All right, so on to funny games. I am really excited to talk about this. Um, I really like the movie itself. I'll just say that right now. I'm a big fan. I think it's a really unique movie. Um, It it truly is uncompromising. And I was excited to know what Martin thought about this movie because 
it is like I said, it's 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 not it's not going to be for everybody. It's going to be it's an uncompromising movie, and I'll say right now that I think it borders the line between what you consider entertaining. On purpose, of course. It's not like um, Hanukkah went out and was like just making a bad movie. He made a movie that is intentionally um, offsetting to the viewer and intentionally a, like almost like a, a difficult thing to watch in general. Um, and we'll talk about what how he goes about that, but um, let's just kind of try to go through the uh the crux of the situation that starts out with funny games so you know we have a family um clearly of the bourgeois class right because we get a nice opening scene where they're listening to opera they're trying to guess like oh whose rendition of this uh you know composition in d minor is it Please guess, honey. And <laughs> you get this like this great scene of them just traveling uh, through the countryside and like listening to the opera. Um, and then immediately you get bashed over the head with John Zorn's Naked City. Uh, wow. You mean Guar. No, no. It's John's. It's it's important because this is like the I mean, the epitome of like you, you're looking for a movie that highlights grindcore. It's funny games, guys. Both the the fucking 1997 version and the 2008 version, they both have this Naked City soundtrack in them. Don't I say? Don't you like the like it's playing it, and then as they're driving around, I think it's amazing. Like when I first saw that, I was like, "Oh my god, that's that's amazing," because it is. Uh, of course, it's meant to be just something that hits the viewer. Right, like it, it, it's confrontational immediately. It's a, it's a dichotomy between the operatic score that we just heard. This family, you know, calmly driving through the countryside, and then immediately you get lambasted with that. Um, I should point out too that, <clears throat> which I want, I want to point out. I don't have to point out, but I want to point out that Naked City with John Zorn is a, is a great, um great band because it does have such a weirdness to it too that that i think is perfect for funny games because it has you know john zorn is a very he's, he's a he's a fairly renowned comp uh composer and saxophonist mostly does jazz but he does have this weird naked city band too from the like the early 90s that he did this uh free jazz sort of grindcore composition to and he used uh, Yamataka Eye from uh, Boredoms and Hanatarash, which are uh, noise bands, uh, as the vocalist. And it's just can, a really can, weird I, thing. I can hear you boring the audience right now. I'm sorry. This is this is this is my <laughs> this is my area right this now. This is your wheel. This is That's your right. wheelhouse. That's You've right. been waiting for 213 <laughs> fucking episodes That's to right. go on a grindcore noise like you know rant. Like yeah, you know. But I I love it, and I think that it's right there and then. Like if you get confronted with that when you when you hear this score and you're just like, "That's awful. That's terrible. I, I'm out." Right then, you're just like you're not prepared for what funny games is going to offer. And I, I like that. I think that's a, a really amazing opening to the movie that just bashes you over the head and, and, you know, just gets you prepared for what's to come. Um, 
it's great. It's it's a good good dichotomy. I love it all around. And then and then ultimately after that the film slows down again. It's a very very slow film. There it's it's almost a film that is like forcing the viewer to expect something. Um and ultimately we really don't get much of anything. It's just like a very minute boring dialogue about the family settling in at this lake house. And it ultimately I what do you what do you think about what um, Hanukkah's doing here is he attempting to make the viewer not care about the uh, the 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 um, family or is it just you know setting it in a realism what what do you think like did you end up feeling like you cared about the the characters right away no because it's it's you know just your stereotypical here's your family Mm-hmm. Uh, so like it's showing the minute minutia of them, which it doesn't really make you feel attached to them. But as we are introduced to our antagonists, you can, you know, start to kind of gravitate more towards them. You know, even if you, uh, kind of disassociate with, uh, bourgeois rich people on like their lake house getting ready to sail and listening to opera, um, you know, so I think, I think, you know, seeing it being viewed as, you know, just stereotypical, here you go, uh, here's our protagonist, is, you know, it's within the rhythm and idea of the film. Right? Reminds me a lot, actually, of Creep, you know, the mm-hmm. how Creep's kind of originally, you know, as we did, you know. Uh, like 20 episodes ago, almost like, you know, reminds the setup reminds me a lot of that, except instead of it being shot in the first person, like creep, you know, it's, uh, obviously in your, a more traditional linear style. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think it, it has a lot of the similar ideas, uh, play. I mean, obviously creep came a lot later, but, um, it, yeah, inspired, you know, inspired by this film. But, I mean, ultimately, you get that really weird encounter at the beginning of the movie where, you know, one of these sort of, like, (laughs) obviously, like, bougie golf club-type kids comes to the door, uh, you know, with, like, his, like, little bowl-cut sort of haircut going on and asks for eggs and asks for eggs from people that this family knows. They're, like, you know... No, it's not just you know any old person that's in the the vicinity here. It's it's the people that they know, and it's it's kind of a weird um, request because why why didn't just the people that they know come and, and ask for eggs? They're they're sending somebody that this family does not know to come and ask for eggs, and I really like that moment because it is such an um, off putting moment. It's very. Um, cringy, like it, may, it, it literally makes you cringe because it has that um, element of like this kid just keeps fucking up. He, you know, he he drops the eggs once. And you're like, oh man, that's that's so you know, <laughs> that's so annoying that he dropped the eggs and he comes back and asks for more. And it just has that like almost like cringe comedy and um, very like awkward set up to it that I think works really well and is very off-putting to the viewer because it is 
such an awkward encounter between the mom, Anna, and um, Paul. It's just so awkward. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's, it's really interesting how it shows how they finagle their way into the house and kind of like take an innocuous encounter and then slowly notch it up to the point where it now seems sinister. Um, and we get the, and and we get to see that uh, from a distance in the beginning when before the or maybe yeah I can't remember if it's before or after the credits uh, where we you know get to see like them driving and at you know they're talking to their neighbors mm-hmm. and we see them in the background talking to them you know and they're very flippant and not responding to them they're like oh what's going on you know yeah um, that's weird you know right. Yeah, and you just kind of get like this, this feeling that something is off, but you don't really, you can't really put your finger on it. And then later on, you know, as Paul, you know, gets into the house, and you can't really, you know, he's weird, but you can't really put your finger on what's happening, especially if you don't really know the, the plot of this movie. I mean, obviously, if you know, oh, it's a home invasion movie, you know, which it has now really come to be known then obviously you're you kind of are expecting that but if you go in and you really don't know much about funny games at all the whole thing is just very awkward and off-putting and i think it works really well to just put the the viewer on at an unease that they generally don't have the film is all about really putting both the viewer and the family in a sense of unease where we don't know what's going to happen um and also, like, Hanukkah's um, main crux here for Paul and um, Peter is that we don't really know anything about them. And we don't know a motive. And we don't know why they're doing anything of what they're doing besides the fact that they find it fun, like, as a game. And ultimately, Hanukkah is inviting us to be a part of that game because the film often um, breaks the fourth wall. You know, obviously Peter actually turns to the camera in multiple instances and sort of asks the audience or, or goads the audience into being a part of this game. Uh, What did you, what do you think about the, uh, you know, the fourth wall breaking there? I liked it. Um, it seems, especially today with how like, you know, meta has become, you know, even more meta and now it's kind of kind being meta is now kind of being like uh faux pas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can only imagine in 19, you know, 97, 98, how, how that would be, especially in a, you know, horror film. Um, I really appreciate that because it's again. We get to kind of, I mean, it's not just the way he kind of portrays, like, you know, when he's asking us things, uh, Peter. But it's also, it's subverting our expectations. And I kind of like the way, like, it's, lead, like, you know, leading itself. Because, again, when you watch a type of film, whether, you know, Home Invasion, your generic, like, horror slasher film, you have a set of expectations that, you know, are supposed to be met. And then having him outright question your expectations and what you want as a viewer, and then kind of sub, you know subverting them throughout the film, 
is really smart, and I think this film does it really well. It's an aspect that I really enjoy in the you know in this film, you know. Uh, yeah, and, and even 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 little things like when when you know after they kill the dog, you know, Rolfi, the German Shepherd, and he has. Anna trying to look for the body, and he's going like colder, colder, mm-hmm. warmer, colder, and then she's like wandering about, and he like looks at the camera, you know, turns around, just like does a little wink, you know, and like look, <laughs> this is fucking stupid, and then turns around, you know, even like you know that is you know, I appreciate because it's again like, it's playing on like the fact that you know, we are. Not just a viewer, we're, we're voyeuristic in this, you know. Yeah, and kind, of, you know, why why do we see films like this? Like because we have a lot of people have an urge to like you know have like a kernel urge to want to see like you know they want to see the brutality. That's why in most slasher films, our protagonists are fucking irreconcilable, unconsolable bastards and douchebags because you're like, yeah, you want I want to see this fucking person die so. This, you know, family, you, I wouldn't put in, you know, into that care, you know, that realm of irreconcilable douchebags that you want to see die. So the fact that, you know, we see these two people kind of dragging them along and them giving a wink and a nod like, yeah, you know, this is, they probably don't deserve it. And here you are watching, you know, watching with, you know great you know intent it it does it it does add a sleaziness to it yeah and i think like too that that is kind of the point of not really knowing the characters that well and also getting that initial meeting with them in the car and we kind of feel like oh they're bourgeois they um you know they they're fairly rich obviously they're going to a lake house they have a fucking sailboat where they you know they have like a whole jerry rig system there um we're supposed to. I think we're supposed to have this expectation of this family, or this, um, you know, this preconceived notion, like ah, oh, they're bourgeois. Um, and as like a middle class person, I think that these people are probably not going to be people that I like. And then over time, the film doesn't even really make them likable. It just makes them people. It like it literally is just like oh well, you know what? <laughs> they're responding in a similar way that you probably would. So forget the fact that they're rich bourgeois people. They're literally just people in this situation. And I think that's a kind of an interesting element to it because you're right. Slasher films really take characters that have very strong personalities and very stereotypical personalities. And we immediately um, associate with those personalities. We know, oh, this guy's the douchebag. This guy's the, you know, the, you know, the, the main character. This is a final girl that we're kind of supposed to like. We have those preconceived notions of those stereotypes, and that really helps us define how we're supposed to feel throughout the movie. This movie kind of throws that out. It doesn't really give us any of that. It doesn't really allow us to meet any of these characters. In fact, the film often gives us um, conflicting elements of, of the, the characters, especially our antagonists. They give a story about how they've been formed and why they are the way they are, and then it gets completely thrown out. He's like... And it's kind of like the meta commentary as well. I can give you a different story if you want. Um, whatever story helps make you frame this in a way that makes sense to you. Um, it's it's an interesting element to it that kind of throws out <clears throat> the idea of knowing characters or even 
<clears throat> liking or disliking characters. I think Funny Games has an intentional element of transparency where you don't really like or dislike these characters. You just find them as people. Um, and that makes it a little bit more disturbing. I do like at the beginning of the movie too the fact that <clears throat> there's that moment where you know obviously you know he goes out and he is gonna you know he's, he's using the new driver that he he just basically stole from them and he takes a golf ball and then he comes in and he's like why is the golf ball still in my pocket and then you know what happened and they know what well, happened well we know what already happened because we hear the right we hear the dog kind of squeal but like all of that happens off camera and that's pretty much all of the violence that happens in funny games it all happens off camera it all uses diegetic sound to pull pull like emotion from what happens off camera and i think that's immediately that that one spot is where the film goes from this is a weird awkward situation to this is a sinister situation it really flips the switch there where you know and that's kind of how hanukkah plays out all of the scenes the scenes like uh, at the beginning of the movie are kind of like slow and methodical they're playing they're obviously playing some sort of weird game but it's not clear what it is and then even like something what? say they even bring it up to say funny game yeah right roll, roll, roll credits and the, and then like you know after a certain time they ramp it up really quickly and it's like you know then there's like a scene where they all scuffle or there's a scene where we find out the dog's dead um and then it kind of slows down again and the pacing kind of keeps you on your toes it's all over the place i really like that about the how hanukkah directs this movie because he kind of knows that we're expecting this movie to flow at a familiar pace, like at a slasher pace. It's not going to. It's it's going to be paced how he wants it to be. And I think that's a, another interesting off-putting element to the movie. And it kind of leads us to that moment about halfway through the movie where we have that off-screen scuffle, a gunshot while... Uh, Peter is making a sandwich in the kitchen and you as the viewer are left wondering, well, what happened with that gunshot? We know something happened with that gunshot. We know one of the family members was shot with that gunshot, but we don't know what happened. And Hanukkah refuses to show us what happened. There is no, you know, cutaway to the living room. There is Peter making a fucking sandwich while we watch him make a sandwich. And I think that is another one of those confrontational things that we get with this movie that it refuses to show us things that the director knows we want to see. I really enjoyed that about how it really it just does not show us the violence on screen. It, it which again, I, I think I think sorry to cut you off, but it like one of the constant themes and monikers, <clears throat> excuse me, of this whole podcast, especially when it comes to like horror and suspense films, it's always better to leave a mystery than to show. Grotesque violence, if you see it, you know it, you can process it. Leaving it to the imagination is even creepier. So by not showing most of the violent acts in this and just showing the aftermath or or how characters are reacting, 
you get a much more visceral feel and your just innate desire to want to know what happened, you know, will eat at you more than what, you know, actually have, you know, they could possibly show you. Because the aftermath is we see afterwards after they leave, you know, Peter and George, uh, Peter and Paul leave. We see that little Georgie, their son, been shot in the head, heads blown off. After we see three minutes of the TV covered in blood with a race going on. And we get to see, like, you know, the mother's reaction as she's trying to escape. But seeing the aftermath and what's going on is much more impactful and much more bracing as a viewer than actually seeing if they showed his head getting blown clean off. Mm-hmm. And the film also sub- subverts your expectations because, again, for the most part, especially in American films, maybe not so much in foreign, I, I couldn't tell you, but it's always been incredibly taboo in American films, no matter what the rating, to go around killing a child. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I would say, <laughs> you know, even still in most international movies, it, that's still fairly taboo. I mean, there's even, you know, an Italian movie called Who Can Kill a Child that was pretty, uh, you know... Uh, uh, taboo at the time when it released um, of actually like literally killing a child. It's kind of like Children of the Corn on an Island, but goes even further. <laughs> um, oh, so uh, Lord of the Flies. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, well, I mean, I guess kind of, but mostly the <laughs> fact that the, the, the kids rebel and uh, there's a, a couple people stuck on the island and they, and they have to ask themselves, can I kill a child? And how dare um, you? That's a Spanish film, not a uh, yeah, sorry, Spanish film. Yep, and um, I think like, like I think that is really shocking in this movie, and it it is shocking because we do have to sit through that moments of Peter making a sandwich, um, the the aspect of noise in the background of that incessant race car sound that's just going on, and it's almost like that in itself is confrontation from Hanukkah. It's like. Are you gonna? Are you literally gonna sit through this? Are you? Are you gonna sit through this noise as you listen to car racing and and see the blood on the TV? Do you need to see more? And then he gives us a little bit more, and then we sit there for probably a good six minutes of just that scene of watching Anna get up, go to the TV, turn it off, waiting to hear if the uh, you know Paul and Peter are coming back, and then the moment where they kind of contemplate what just happened and uh Georg is is kind of like just has that grief wail of you know recognizing holy shit you know my son just was murdered and here I am uh just laying here you know helpless it's a really off-putting moment for both reasons and that's why I call this movie difficult for two different elements it's difficult because well, they murdered a kid, but we don't even see it. But it's also difficult because literally that that scene is just so difficult to watch. It's it's long. It forces the viewer to look on a scene and just kind of like take it in, to take in every single detail of that element and to sit there and wait for things to happen. And I think that's, you know, again, it's, it's, a, it's a way, it's a meta way to put the audience into the, the voyeuristic position of being in the same scenario. But we don't have any stakes in it. We are literally just watching this occur. 
And that's Hanukkah, you know, also questioning the audience. Like, when are you, when is this going to be enough? When are you going to turn it off? And um, I think that's really, it's an interesting element to funny games. That's even a question that Peter asked because, you know, ultimately he says at the, towards the end of the, the, the funny games, he's like, did we do enough? Like, is that enough for you? Should we do some more funny games before this ends? Um, it's a question to the audience. How much are you willing to put in? Is this entertaining for you? Um, it's not, it's not, you know, like, um, I don't know, like a, a clouded metaphor. It's pretty clear <clears throat> how Hanukkah feels about violence in cinema. And he even wrote an essay about violence in cinema, kind of equating the fact that, like, we as an audience are sort of um, part of the, the issue with watching violence in cinema. It's like, why do you want to watch it? What What is in it for you as the audience member to watch all of this violence? And I would say that... Hanukkah would probably kick back at the fact that this is a horror movie. Um, it's horrible in some capacity. I don't think that he meant it to be a horror movie where people watched it and were like, oh, I love that movie. You know, <laughs> it's a horror movie. I love watching funny games. It's meant to I be. I, I wouldn't really consider it a horror film. Yeah, no, I, I don't agree. It's... I don't think it is a horror movie. It's kind of gets lumped into that scenario, but I think it's a realistic drama almost. And, I think they bring up too the fact that um, where is the line drawn between what you're watching as being entertainment and what you're watching as being reality? Like, is it just a fantasy that you're watching this movie, seeing these people play it out, and you're gonna turn it off and like that? Oh, okay, that's that's fiction, and I'm just gonna set that aside. Or is it in some capacity reality that you just watched? Uh, for your own personal entertainment, but like in reality, this could happen. This is this this is happening. It happens to people. Um, you know, violent crimes happen to people. So where is the entertainment in that? I do think it's you know it's it's it's, it's an interesting um, question to ask yourself as a viewer because, like I said, I love funny games. I think it's a really good movie. Why do I think it's a really good movie? Do I think it's a really good movie because it really is a difficult movie and it tests the patience of the viewer and it tests their stamina? Or do I think it's a really good movie because the filmic elements of it are really good or because Hanukkah is a good director? I think, I think though, I mean, the difference, especially with, like, the critique of, like, you know... Of what you know, being voyeuristic and watching the violence, I un- I understand where he's coming from with that, like you know, and how much we're kind of contributing it to it. But film is so less of an evil when it comes to that mm-hmm. than like say video games. I'm not saying I don't enjoy a good first person shooter, but what's like 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 you're playing Doom? What's your job? To fucking kill people, rip their heads open. Mm-hmm. And it's metal and badass. Yeah, I mean, I, I think know, in 1997, you know, like obviously that was a lot less. Uh, no, but even no, but no, even still, like by like 97, you still had like you know video games that mm-hmm. were you know that are even more in the forefront, like putting you in that perspective. You know, mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think on the violence end, I think when it comes to like if you're already going in and you know it's a work of nonfiction, your mind's able to kind of separate. 
the difference and kind of engage with like, I'm watching a piece of fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, I, that that's the difference between people with functioning brains and you know sociopaths who can't you know like split the difference. Um, that allow you to be put in these uh, you know absurd scenarios and kind of see what's going on. You know, so I mean, I I again I appreciate the idea that he's going for, but at the same time, like if you watch like a film like this and you don't, does it make you like a bad person for like watching the violence and not turning it off? No, because again, you're already going in with an, with a mindset that this is a work of fiction. It's different from reality. Hmm. Where the difference comes is when, and that's the same thing with like you play like you know like Call of Duty, like are you a bad person because you're playing a game where you're mowing down thousands of people? No, the difference comes when it, it translates to reality, like actual like you know when if you're actually watching like snuff in real life, and if you can't like you know make that you know distinction between what you're watching is real and fantasy. If you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, what What did you think about <clears throat> after, you know, after Georg Jr. is killed and um, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do from here and Peter and Paul leave? What do you think about that lull um, in the movie where there's, you know, there's the whole element of like they kind of think like, oh, well, you know what? They've, wa- they've gone. We need to go for help. Uh, and there's kind of this lull or false sense of security that, like, oh, well, you know, maybe they're not going to be back. Maybe we're a little bit safe right now. What do you think about that? I mean, it's fine. I mean, it's kind of idiotic to think that, though. I mean, from a story standpoint, you think the last half, like, 20 minutes of the film is going to be just them wandering around, like, looking for help without any ramifications? Well, I actually think it's <laughs> interesting that um, towards the end – they kind of mentioned the fact like, oh, you know what? It was fate that this happened because they almost they almost leave it up to chance. Like, will we encounter them again as we're driving around this neighborhood or will we not? And we'll just leave them alone. And then, oh, nope, we happened on them because there's that in there's that encounter where Anna is running away. By the way, she does have the most ridiculous sweater to wear while she's out running through the woods. Um this seems just so very, uncomfortable. Very practical to wear your <laughs> big baggy uh, U-shaped uh, knit sweater. You know, like might have to go across, you know, river and lake. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna put this on and have it weigh me down the whole way. No, I, I, I thought that was, you know, that is not my my garment of choice when I'm running through the woods. But, um, but there's that scene where she is, you know running on the street and she sees a car go by and she hides because she doesn't know who it is. And then as it goes by, she realizes, Oh, okay, that must be, you know, that's, that's safe. So I, I, you know, but I missed it. So then she sees another car that's coming and then she's, she decides, you know what? I'm not going to hide again. I I need, I need help. So I'm going to flag them down. And then it ends up being Paul and Peter. I thought that was an interesting element about fate too. And, I think it ties in too with the film's meta commentary as well, because at the end of the movie, we do get a scene where Anna actually gets the gun away from Peter and shoots Paul, and then it gets rewound. Um, great, great bit, love that. Yeah, 
because that's not how it's supposed to go. That's not, you know, it's almost like that's not what the viewers expected. That's not what the viewer wants. The viewer wants to see the violence, see the, you know, the, no, I thought I, I no, no, I thought it was more that like that's the heroic moment that you want, and then for it to happen, and then Peter be like, no, that's not what we're doing, and mm-hmm. then to rewind it for them to, you know, for her to be punished. Yeah, I think it's both. I think it's you know, it's it, we we want that we expect that heroic moment. We expect the the final girl to to pull out pull it out and figure out a way to get out of this, and we also. You know, he kind of comments, we're not done. We're not, we're not quite at feature length yet. And so he said, oh, he says that before. Yeah. So, but I think like that's that, that ties into both, both aspects of it. I think it it works really well. And I think it's, it's interesting too, because that kind of takes, it's supposed to take the viewer out of the reality of the situation, but I don't really think it does. I think it, you know, it still makes things, um, hyper realistic even though it has these elements of breaking the fourth wall what do you think about the fact that the film really has no no score at all has no music besides the naked city uh intro and outro i'm fine with that i think i think the film the scenes itself and the tension that is created between the actors and actresses in this film, uh, make up like you don't need a score for it. The tension's there enough. Mm-hmm. It'd be kind of annoying to have like music stings throughout the film uh, to backfill that. I think uh, like the music sting kind of takes the place of I have to do work to actually make mm-hmm. it suspenseful. You know, the music sting is like you should feel this way, audience. So here you go. And I think that the element of silence and using the actual sound of the the moment makes it more realistic because we're not taken out of we're, – we're not subjected to the fact that, hey, we're watching a movie. It's, again, the voyeuristic element of, hey, we're watching this occur. Um, so the other thing I wanted to ask since we're doing this uh, this month – did you find this to be a difficult film wherein you didn't find hereditary to be a difficult film? Uh, no, not really. I think you're taking difficult film too literal. Like (laughs) I'm not saying like you had to look away from this movie, but, but it is a difficult film in the fact that like, I, no, I, I, I don't feel like, no, I, I, I don't feel like it was difficult to watch. Would I be going back to it like Schindler's List? Like, oh, you know, every I make sure once a week to watch Schindler's List. No, <laughs> you know, as great of a film as this. No, no, I mean, I, I don't. But at the same time, I don't think like it's like it's like that like emotionally draining. I would I would actually wa- probably watch this film again because I think it's that well made. I think it's that well done, it's that well acted, the concept's, you know, endearing enough. Is it, like, taxing? Yes. But is it, like, difficult? Like, I can't, like, it's hard to bear. No, yeah, and I don't mean that it's hard to bear. I mean, in the, I think you're getting what I'm, I'm talking about. 
I'm, I'm it's it's ta- it's a taxing movie. It's not a movie that you're gonna put on for uh you know a fun Saturday night and be like I'm gonna throw on some funny games. You know the the rest of the six people here at this party are gonna love it. They're gonna have such <laughs> a fun time. It's just not a you know it's it's not intentionally made to be a fun movie. I don't. I, I get. I don't know. Maybe it's. Have you seen Schindler's List? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I've okay. Seen so like. List. So like. I mean, like. I mean, like. It's kind of like a bit like a gold standard of like uh like diff like a difficult film because as great as it is and like well made as it is and well acted as it is, watching like you know Ralph Fiennes just like callously shoot you know people. It, that's taxing here I think because they're still in a, because that's also in a, a historical piece set in like you know real history that makes it you know more taxing I think here because again we're still dealing with a fiction element it's it again it's is it taxing like would I like sit down like and be a, pick out like what's a movie I'm gonna watch today I'm gonna watch funny games no okay well, I then I think I, it did but, its job I think it did its I job do, but I don't think it's like that, like, like, like taxing on the soul, though. Like, it, mm. it gets its point across. I think it does it well. I, I don't think, though, like, you're a sociopath, though. If you're like, I want to watch this film every, like, every other week. Yeah, I, I do agree. think. I, 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 I do think it has its merits as a, you know, home invasion psychological thriller. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I mean difficult in that respect and i don't even mean difficult in the fact like oh i couldn't watch it or it was you know i i feel like some people might feel like that um and i I, but i do i think it's difficult just in the fact it's both ways it's difficult in that it does challenge the viewer it challenge it's a confrontational movie it's uncompromising it's not a fun watch in any respect it's i wouldn't sometimes i wouldn't even call it entertaining the you know the six minute scene where you have to sit through and and kind of just watch the scene play out uh in one room and, yeah and, and very shot. you know very slow methodical it's not even entertaining to watch and i think that's part of the intention of that it's not meant to be entertaining to watch in any respect um but i, I don't i i don't see that I, do, I don't think though that when it comes to watching a film especially if it's a, if you're somebody like us who like like film, I, I don't think you should expect all films to be entertaining. Yeah, I agree. Like, I agree. Like, uh, so like, I'm not. Yeah, I I, 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 don't think the fact that like there's because again there's a lot of films that we've done that we like that aren't shot to be entertaining. They're shot, you know, for for certain artistic purposes, and I mm. think this film, I it's. I don't think the fact that it's not like entertaining doesn't make it, you know, difficult to watch. I think it's you know. Well, I kind of disagree. I feel like most people would find that it's if it's not entertaining, it's going to be a difficult watch. Well, that's that's why they're not they don't have their own fucking podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I mean, I think I think you know we're not in a, a, again we're not speaking specifically to our own sake that it's difficult like i've seen funny games i i enjoy it it's to me it's it wasn't difficult in the fact that i couldn't go back to it it's certainly not a movie that i'm going to show everybody and in that sense i think that it becomes a difficult film 
And it's good to, to, to kind of get back with the Oscars a little bit, to give them a little credit. If every film that was fucking entertaining won the Best Picture, we'd be giving fucking Iron Man a goddamn Best Picture award every goddamn right. year. Right. Or these troglodytes that think the Joker's the greatest film of all time because, you know, incels are cool. I haven't seen Taxi Driver. All right. So we got to give Funny Games a, a rating. Did we talk about, like, uh, we, well, we didn't really talk about yet. Well, we kind of briefly, but. So, how do you feel about the gore being, sub, like, subdued and off camera? I love it. I think it works really well. I think, I think especially when you hear things like the gunshot that happened off camera, um, that makes you think more about what happened. <clears throat> and I like that a lot. I think that not seeing it is a great way to harvest the worst from a person's psyche you're thinking the worst we didn't show you anything you're thinking the worst part of it and i think that works and plays into the meta commentary about funny games what about how about the fact that i'm trying to play for a second i had a question <laughs> you had it and you lost uh, it. yeah i lost it um Shit. <laughs> oh no. So how, how? So how do you feel overall then about? It's gone again. Oh man, we had a double double question lost. Well, if you come back to it. <laughs> so, let's rate it. If you come back to it, then we can cover it. But. So on a scale of zero to ten, soapy, portable phones. Oh no! Sorry. <laughs> okay, you got I, it. All right. It came back to me. Sorry. Sorry about that, folks. Don't don't have Parkinson's disease. Anywho, what? So what do you feel about the ending, in it being such a dour down note, and the fact that we nobody in this family gets to survive? Love it. I love it that they don't survive. That the film. Act- Actually, the end, too, does not even really give Anna a chance to fight back. She just is yeeted from the boat. Do you like that red herring that we got to see, like, the knife and, like, yep. beginning of the film, like, fall Drop under, into like... the boat and yeah. doesn't make a comeback at all? Yep, love it. Well, well, it makes a comeback. It's just, it's just ineffectual. Yep, I love it. I think it's great. I think, you know, them just not even making it into a moralistic thing, they just push her out of the boat i love i like that a lot just eat her the shit right on out right on out ciao bella and 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 she's out i like it a lot i like the fact that the film ends in a circular note too now they know where this other family lives so they're heading over there and they're just making the route of this lake area that people have you know taken up summer homes in Again, I see it, like, after watching the show, I see a lot of creep in it, because this is basically, like, you know, creep's end. I would say that, you know, a lot of home invasion-style films have taken a lot from funny games. I really consider it to be the home invasion movie. Um, You know, a lot of people find other home invasion movies to be uh, effective, and I do, too, in some capacity. The Strangers got a lot of uh, credit for it um, when it came out, which I find to be a really um, lower quality funny games. 
and uh, you know a couple others as well. Your next uh, was kind of like a parody on it, and um, Panic uh, Room. Yeah, I guess yeah, Panic Room as well. Uh, <laughs> if you, I guess I, I don't know. I guess it is a home invasion movie in some sense, but um, well, Panic Room. Yeah, I mean the whole. Point I mean, is li- like quite the- literally, it is a home invasion <laughs> movie. So <laughs> yeah, um, and um, obviously too p- partially the Purge. But uh, oh, I was, yeah, I was, you know what? I was, I was thinking that too because after, after kind of watching it because I've, I've seen the Purge before. I'd never really thought of it like as a home invasion film. Yeah, I mean it basically is, and and the pur- the rest of the purges after that don't really become more like they're kind of outside of the home invasion genre. But the Purge specifically is a home invasion movie. I just think Funny Games is probably the definitive home invasion movie. All right, so. Like I was saying, rating the film on a scale <laughs> of one to ten soapy uh, portable phones, because that is the the main crux of why they cannot call for help in this movie. Why don't they have a landline? I don't know. Like probably because they don't want to pay for it. Because they're what they're do you mean you don't want to pay? What do you mean they don't want to pay for it? It's not like they have a fucking speedboat. Like they, yeah. they can't. They have a, a sailboat for God's sakes. Yeah, I know. Well, it's, it seems like the sailboat's the way to be. Everybody has a sailboat there. They're like, if the wind's right, come on over. That's like, I, I, that must be the ultimate bouginess. Is like, I don't even pay for a speedboat. I use the wind to my advantage. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Bougie, who owns sailboats? Fucking rich New England folks. Yeah, right. Who right. say slicker instead of raincoat. <laughs> so, what would you rate Funny Games? I want you to go first this time. Oh, you want me to go first? Okay. Yes. We don't do that often, but um, I, w- I, w- I want to hear your, your thoughts. I would give up first. Funny Games a 9 out of 10. I really like this movie. I think it does a really good job of both offering, uh, like the like I said, the de- de- definitive home invasion movie, as well as a meta commentary on, hey, why do you why do you watch horror movies? Like, what exactly draws you to the fact that you're going to see multiple people murdered in disturbing or what should be disturbing fashion and you enjoy it i like that a lot because it does kind of lend itself to my own personal opinions of like why do i watch horror movies why do i enjoy true crime shows where i learn about the grisly murders of real people who experience horrific trauma in their life why am I drawn to crime scene photographs and, you know, want to see the worst of humanity? Um, I think it, 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 it kind of like hits an area of me that is a, that, you know, has that same dichotomy that the film presents. Like, why do you like it? And I consider myself a fairly nice guy. I don't know. Maybe hopefully other people do too. Um, Shit. <laughs> um, but like, why, why are you this person that, that is drawn to the worst of humanity? And then also, um, you know, f- puts on a fairly moralistic, um, lifestyle. Um, the film itself is presented and, and, you know, kind of like, well, we don't know the motives of Paul and Peter. They do kind of present something that I kind of, I feel like is truthful and the fact that they don't really have a moralistic center. There is no morals. We live in a chaotic world of entropy and, uh, you know, and stuff. And we, we don't, we don't, there's not really a moral. 
we have created one because as humanity, we have brains to be able to think of what is moralistic and not, but animals don't have a moral center and they do what they need to do to survive. And I think that the film kind of has that element to it that, um, what is, what are morals? What do they mean to humanity? Why do we have them? And why are you watching this? I, I like all of those questions. I don't have answers to them, but I like that it poses it. And um, I, I, I find that really interesting to watch and really interesting to kind of posit as I contemplate why I enjoy and also don't enjoy funny games. I think I'd give it an eight and a half out of ten. Um, I really like this film. I like it more than Hereditary, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think it, I think the fact that it is a more challenging film, where Hereditary is kind of like your standard horror film, I think this has enough going for it in the way of originality, and that makes it interesting and engaging. I think the fact that it has the fourth wall breaks to kind of clue in on like, hey, you're a pass, you know, you're more than a passenger on this trip, you know, you're watching and engaging in what's going on uh, makes for a very interesting film. I think the acting in this film all around is great. You know, I really think it's shot well. It looks great. I think <clears throat> the fact that it is quiet, subdued, we don't really have a score, makes it feel claustrophobic at times it's definitely going to be taxing to watch in the sense that it's not shot to be entertaining it's it's shot to in an artistic way that's made to make you think um, I think it's done incredibly well it's really I think really enjoyable I think the point is well made I think the fact that a lot of the violence is off-screen, left to you know your own imagination, and the fact that it's just so dour in its tone and set to making it about the point of you know just violence overall is what makes it you know enjoyable, and I would recommend this film. I like it a lot. Um kind of mad i never seen it until up, up, up until now now yeah so, yeah uh, i'd say probably eight and a half awesome all right so that's our funny games episode thanks for sticking with us as we cover this difficult film it we're gonna so goddamn hard <laughs> we're gonna be back uh next week with another episode um next time we're gonna do requiem for a dream my favorite jim carrey film <laughs> Yeah. I think you're thinking of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. No, uh, number 23. Number 23. That, that's another difficult film for different Yo, reasons. we should have done that. We should have done that. Yeah. Because uh, that's one of two films that I'll never forgive you for uh, <laughs> dragging The other one was to. Epic Movie. I know. Yep, you, I know for sure. <laughs> you owe me $16, so. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to do uh, Requiem for a Dream. Uh, I have the Lionsgate 4K. So we're going to do, yeah, you watch that one. And um, 
That'll be part three in our difficult film series. Oh, that's why it's difficult. It has a Wayne's brother and Jared Leto. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's gonna be yeah, it's gonna be tough. Tough to watch. Um, so thanks for listening to our difficult film series so far. Hope you're enjoying it. Uh, you can let us know what you want for other difficult films. You can write to us at our our uh, email address at blindblackrumpodcast at gmail dot com. And so what if, makes so sorry, on. but what makes Requiem for a Dream so? Ah, you'll see, you'll see, you'll see. Just have to watch and see. Huh? Um, you can listen to us on pretty much any podcasting episode, uh, podcasting app you can think of. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or home base at Anchor.fm. Good Pods. You can subscribe to us on there. Leave us a nice review. We are on Facebook and Twitter. Search for us on there. Uh, follow us and like us and all that stuff. And uh, we have a Patreon that you can donate to at patreon.com. You can also donate to us on Good Pods. Um, a couple other places. So whatever you could donate our way. Really appreciate. We're going to put it back towards beer. So No, we're going to put it towards a call-in line. Yeah, that's true. We're going to put it towards a call-in line where we can take you live viewer phone calls. Viewer. Listener phone calls. Sorry. It's, it's we're not dream. a video podcast yet. All right. So join us next time, next week, for Requiem for a Dream. And until then. Take care. This is the